talking about Samson, who was a young man who was brought into this world with a very peculiar calling, even when you look at him and assess his calling against the other judges. He's been called to his peculiar position by the Lord himself. Even before he was born, he was already marked out by God to be used by God for God's purposes in the world. Now, Samson, though, himself is fairly clueless and frankly he's not the best candidate for the job humanly speaking because after all again God is going to use him to be the savior of God's people that's small s but God's not limited with who he has to work with one of the first at least one of the first recorded decisions that we have concerning Samson making as a young man is to go to a place called Timnah. The Timnah was a city that was ruled and inhabited by the Philistines. And while he's there, he sees a woman who titillates his more prurient interests. Prurient means an excessive interest in sexual matters. His desire to marry this Philistine woman is blatant rebellion against the clear precepts of God's teaching for which Samson cares nothing at least at the moment, precisely because the repetition that we have here is to make sure that we see that Samson saw, in verse 1, that he saw, in verse 2, and what he saw in verse 3, he liked. Compelling his sinful demand to his parents, Get her for me! Despite the fact that it was in utter rebellion to his Lord. This tells us something about Samson's character. Gentlemen and young men, hearing my voice right now, the male of our species has been made by God to be visually driven I want you to listen to my words carefully, just for the next couple of minutes, and you can listen casually. <laughs> but God has created us with our visual sensitivities and our visual drives. Visual stimulation in the realm of sexual attraction has been the rule of men since the very beginning. And this is not a character flaw. This difference between men and women is in fact a blessing. Un Till we unhitch that blessing from the moorings of God's heart for us. Once we disconnect what is an innate, what is an inborn visual sensitivity 
from the virtues counselor. Once we sever that tie between this innate sensitivity from the virtues counselor that we have in Christ, we become temptation. Pray for temptation to Satan. That's P-R-E-Y. This is the reason that men are 543% more likely to view pornography than women. However, the more we are regressing as a culture, as a civilization, and continue to destroy that God-blessed uniqueness between male and female, those kinds of statistics, as we have seen over the decades, continue to change. And that gap between men being visually stimulated and women continues to grow closer and closer together. In other words, the more we continue to blur the differences between male and female, the more the God-given and God-blessed distinctiveness of the genders lessen. And this is Satan's second greatest assault on the world today. My opinion. You say, what is the first? The first is the twisting the perverting and the reinventing of God and of God's Word. The most recent example, perhaps, is Hollywood's new release called Noah. And what should be convincing is how easy it is for Satan to do so because of Christians' ignorance of God's Word. Now, our tendency is to rip on Samson, which... Deservedly so, and we can do that all we want for his one-dimensional spirit. But if we're honest with ourselves, men, boys, lads, there's quite a bit of Samson in each one of us. And our downfall in the area of sex begins with allowing our eyes to see those things that ought not to be seen. And in our day of technology and hiddenness, we have to be ridiculously vigilant. And I'm going to put up on the wall behind me two resources. The triplexchurch.com and covenanteyes.com are two organizations that are committed to helping men First, stay away from pornography or into pornography to help get them out of pornography. And what, these, what they have to offer are accountability uh, softwares that go into your computer and link you up with an individual or individuals that you choose, that you trust, that you wish to be accountable to, such that every time you go on your computer or your smart device, that is of questionable nature, the person or persons you have on that program are notified where you just went. And if you're sitting here thinking, hmm, note to self, never go there. <laughs> Not a laughing matter. You have a problem. And it is a problem that is destroying the future 
of our young men from having healthy sexual relationships and depriving their wives and their children of healthy families and lifestyles. Take advantage of this. So Samson is set on obtaining the one who grabbed his visual attention. We pick up in chapter 14, verse 5. Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. Now somebody brought something to my attention after the first service, which I'm glad they did. I wouldn't have caught it because I'm not working in the English Standard Version, the ESV, in this text. The English Standard Version reads quite differently in verse 5. It makes it sound as if Samson and his mother and father went into the vineyard with him. So during the break, I went back to Biblica Hebraica, the Hebrew Bible, to check it out. And there is a grammatical uncertainty there, just because of the nature of Hebrew, that would allow for the interpretation of that to be either his parents went with him to the vineyard or he went by himself. So you say, well, okay, in a situation like that, how do you know? All you got to do is read verse 6. Because in verse 6, a lion meets up with Samson in the vineyard, and later on we find out in verse 6 that, but he doesn't tell his parents. If his parents were with him in the vineyard, obviously there would have been nothing to not tell his parents. I don't mean to confuse you here, but some of you do use the ESV, and since I was called on it, and again, I'm glad I was in the first service, I want to clear that, clarify that for you. Okay? So, all that is to say is that on their way down, Samson, mother and father, to Timnah, apparently they must have veered off just for a while, who knows why, but the parents apparently went one way, and Samson went into the vineyards of the Philistines. Now remember from a couple of weeks back concerning Samson that Samson was under a Nazarite vow. It was a special vow taken by an individual. In Samson's case, it was actually uh, foisted upon him, if you will, by his mother at the direction of God before Samson was even born. Nevertheless, he comes into the world and now the Nazarite vow is binding upon him. And there were certain restrictions contained in the Nazarite vow, one of which was the one under such a vow could not partake of wine. And in fact, couldn't partake of anything having anything to do with grapes. Not grape juice, not grape seeds, not grape skins. He couldn't eat grapes. And so my question is, Samson, what are you doing in a vineyard? And by implication, it seems fair to assume that Samson was eating grapes, destroying his Nazarite vow. Well, while he's in the vineyard, a lion <laughs> appears and approaches Samson. And while I don't have any personal experience with such a thing, Lion versus man does not usually have a good outcome for the man. Unless the man is carrying a 375 caliber rifle, 
with a Barnes triple shock 270 grain bullet. But, of course, Samson does not have something like that. But he does have something infinitely more reliable, namely his hands. <laughs> and by the way, just let me uh, just let you know, and this was long before 911. Barbara and I were crossing the border into Canada one day. And, you know, funny me, when the uh, Border Patrol asked me if I had any weapons in the car, I looked at her straight face and I said, only these. You know what? Border Patrol has no sense of humor. <laughs> so I'm just tipping you off in case you didn't know that. Samson has his bare hands. Verse 6 and 7, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Again, if they had been with him in the vineyard, they would have known anyway. So, he was there by himself. So he goes down and he talks to the woman, and she looked... Good to Samson. This is the fourth time that it's emphasized to underscore the fact that Samson's was a purely carnal relationship of gratification. But verse 6 is quite important, even though it's routinely overlooked when popular renditions concerning the story of Samson come to the fore. For most people associate Samson's strength with what? With his hair. But in actuality, his hair had nothing to do with his strength. Samson's locks were sort of a, a symbol, if you will. They were the outward expression, being under the vow of a Nazarite. They were supposed to be an outward expression of what was in his heart, namely his devotion to the Lord which again was the reason for the Nazarite vow, part of which was a proscription against cutting one's hair. Now, as I think about Samson's hair and what it is supposed to be emblematic of and all that, are, are, you, are you curiously amused like I am whenever I see some notorious rocker or a Hollywood star or foul-mouthed hip-hop artist sporting a big cross around a chain? It doesn't confer holiness on them. It doesn't confer faith upon them. It's not even a good luck charm or anything else. In fact, it's quite meaningless and worthless, and it insults its intended significance. Well, that is what Samson's hair will be. The secret to Samson's strength was the Lord. Not his hair. The Lord had everything to do with Samson, even including his daily decisions, even the bad ones, like going down to Timnah, to the city of the Philistines in the first place. The last verse in chapter 13, verse 25, we are reminded, and this is why, that the Lord is stirring Samson for all that's going on. Now, in light of what I said about even bad decisions, if this level of divine involvement gives you some heartburn, let me reassure you that the Lord never causes anyone to sin. 
You say, well, wait a minute. I mean, Samson is like sinning his fool head off all along the way here, and God is stirring in him to get him to do those things and everything else. Let's not forget the Bible interprets the Bible. James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. In other words, it is not that the Lord causes people to sin, but rather the Lord can depend upon man to sin, and he uses it for his purposes. So, up to verse 7, four times already, Samson's visual attraction is underscored. And he has one thing on his mind. Verse 8. When he returned later to take the woman, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey out into his hands, and he went on eating it as he went. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they ate it. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of the lion. Think about Samson. Isn't it odd how a rebellious adult child can exhibit some of the most ghastly irreverent behaviors toward their parents and then at other times behave like a toddler afraid to tell mommy and daddy something he did that he knows is wrong. As a Nazarite, he was also forbidden to touch any dead thing, much less eating something out of a dead thing. Verse 10. And his father went down to the woman, and Samson made a feast there for the young men. For the young men customarily did this. The word translated feast is actually a drink fest. I'm not embellishing, I'm not stretching what it is in the Hebrew, but that's what it is. It is a drinking fest festival or party. Now the significant of that, since since Samson is the groom and basically the sponsor, the organizer of this drink fest, and what would they be drinking? They're drinking the fruit of the vine, namely wine. It is inconceivable that Samson also did not drink. So whether he had violated his vows in the vineyard, we don't know that for certain, or not, He certainly would have here. Meaning what? Well, again, think of the vow of the Nazarite. You've got the grape thing. You've got the dead body thing. So he's already blown two-thirds of his devotion and special vow that he took to the Lord with the one remaining, and that has to do with his hair. And we know the rest of the story and how that is going to turn out And there will, in fact, be ensuing chaos. In the world of Samson, in the world of the Philistines, chaos is coming. Who brings our chaos back into order? Makes the orphans son and a daughter. Who rules the nations with truth and justice 
and shines like the sun in all its brilliance. It's the king of glory, the king, capital K, of kings. Samson is not what we picture as your classic hero archetype, is he? And that's because, as I said at the outset, that God is not limited by what and who he has to work with. We see this principle certainly played out and magnified in the Old Testament, but it carries right through into the New Testament. When Jesus selects those special twelve, the more we get to know those twelve, the more we should be encouraged. It's the Lord's raising up and the Lord's gifting and motivating and empowering each one whom He uses for His kingdom. And that means everyone who wears the name of Christ. Not just some select few throughout the annals of history. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians saying, For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty Not many noble, but God rather has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. (laughs) Talk about a backhanded compliment. So if you think you're a nobody, if you think that you are useless to the Lord, if you think that you are damaged beyond the Lord's doing, the Lord's ability to use any of you, You haven't spent much time with the so-called heroes of Scripture. Not only were they flawed before their calling, they were still flawed after their calling. For the believer, however, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things and become new. Verse 11, when they saw him, that is the Philistines, when they saw Samson, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Remember, Samson was only there with mommy and daddy. He had no friends, nobody to join in the festivities here. And Samson said to them, let me now propound a riddle to you. If you will indeed tell it to me within the seven days of the feast... And I find it out, and, and you find it out, then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. But if you're not able to tell me, then you will have to give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Hey, you're on. Ha! Propound your riddle that we may hear it. And so Samson said to them, Here it is. Get ready. Out of the eater came something to eat. And out of the strong came something sweet. That's it. Now go knock yourselves out. But they could not tell the riddle after three days into the festival. Four days remaining enter the plaintive sound of a cello. Not to be confused with a very bad foghorn. You know that something is building and something's going to happen. Verse 15, Then it came about on the fourth day of the festival that they said to Samson's wife, Okay, look, we're coming up with nothing on this stupid riddle. Entice your husband so that he'll tell us the riddle or we will burn you. (laughs) 
This is her clan, her kin. Nice people. It's probably a bluff. Or we'll burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us to impoverish us? Is this not so? Well, the Philistines ask what I think is a strange question at this point. They ask the, the intended bride-to-be, have you brought us here to impoverish us? Now, it's hard to see how losing a few articles of clothing, if in fact they end up losing the bet, would impoverish them. So I went to the Hebrew, and a better translation is, did you bring us here to possess us? Now, it may be equally hard to understand how losing a riddle would be construed as being possessed until you remember the behind the scenes. You remember the backstory, which is the whole reason for God relying on Samson's going down to Timnah in pursuit of his lusts in the first place. Namely, God is raising up this deliverer, this judge, this small s savior to free God's people from Philistine rule. So before the Philistines even know what's really going on with Samson, they unwittingly present kind of a verbal trailer for the coming movie debut of what is to come. Where God's judge, savior, Samson, in fact, delivers his people from the Philistines with a view toward God's people, in fact, possessing them. 16, well, Samson's wife wept before him and said, (laughs) only hate me, you do not love me, Sammy Whammykins. This is my interpretation. You have your own. It's fine. You propounded a, a riddle to the sons of my people, and you've not told it to me. Oh. And he said to her, Behold, <laughs> I've not even told it to my father or mother. Should I tell you? <laughs> oh, my head. I read this, and I put myself right into that place of, okay, this couple comes to you for pre-marriage counseling. (laughs) Ha ha! No, they're stopped at the door. Leave, get out of my presence. But let's say I didn't know what I know about them. Oh, great, sit down. I would have to say to the woman, look, Your man has the morals of a lizard. He has the character of a chameleon. He lives in his parents' basement. He plays video games into the wee hours of the night. And he has a bottle cap collection. And when it comes to his mommy and daddy, honey, get a grip. You are always going to be second fiddle. Run! To Samson, I mean, this gal isn't any charm. Dude, reality check here. Look, think about this. You are in the gaga, starry-eyed phase of your lust. 
But she's already whining incessantly trying to manipulate you. Wake up and smell the goat's milk and run! (laughs) But we have to keep falling back to chapter 13, verse 25. Reminding ourselves that all of this is the Lord's doing. Verse 17 (laughs) she's not done weeping however she wept before him seven days while the feast lasted isn't that awesome and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him so hard (laughs) and she then went and told the riddle to the sons of her people hear the words of Solomon The words of Solomon, not P.B. A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. (laughs) And she was able to push this guy with these massive pipes, that's the way I picture him anyway, to the breaking point. And they're not even on their honeymoon yet. Which brings up an interesting consideration. We are on the seventh day of the festival and Samson breaks. In the culture, it is after the seven days of festivities that the marriage is to be consummated. <laughs> Woo! Samson knows it. Do you really think that this young man who has been driven by his eyes and his prurient infatuation, is oblivious to what this night holds, if he's lucky. Oh, not tonight, Sammy. All this worry about your silly riddle has given me a headache. In some ways, I think this couple are both cut from the same cloth. Verse 18. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? Ha ha! And Samson said to them, "Ah, If you had not plowed with my heifer, excuse me, sweet lumps of butter, you would have not found out my riddle. This has all the makings of a beautiful evening for newlyweds. And I want you to know, I am not importing a contemporary Western civilization view on Samson's reply when I say that calling one's wife, much less one's new wife, a cow, was not a flattering thing to say. So the Philistines obtain the answer to Samson's riddle, which enrages our flawed hero, which again has been the divine plan from the beginning of this, and all for the purpose of beginning to set his people free from Philistine oppression. Verse 19 Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon. Ashkelon is about 30 miles away from Timnah, 
So he had a ways to go. And I think so that news of what he was going to do would not get back to Timnah too quickly. So he goes down to Ashkelon, and with the Spirit of the Lord upon him, he kills 30 of the Philistines, and he takes their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. (laughs) When tough gets going, go back to mummy and daddy. In the culture now of the day, again, if a marriage was not consummated, as this one had not been, no marriage took place. And in verse 20, we read that Delilah is given to uh, Delilah, that the woman, getting ahead of myself there, is given to Samson's best man at the almost wedding. And with what we know about the woman, you've got to feel sorry for the best man. But now think of this. If the marriage went through, you now have a Jew under a Nazarite vow, in theory, now being legally married to a Philistine. And all that that means in the day, culturally, with what we would call international laws and everything else, And this would have bollocked up God's future plans for what he is about to do in freeing his people from oppression. Stepping back from this, it all looks like what I've said so often through the book of Judges is like just, you know, normal routine life going on with with flawed people in a flawed world and everything else. Here we're dealing with a man with an anger problem, exacting revenge for a bet that went awry. But we know that this is God at work in the world of Samson and in the world of the Philistines, again, to accomplish God's purposes at that moment in history. Now, what does this do to the way that we, or what should this do to the way we view the news of our world today? Does it change it at all? And believe me, I'm looking in the mirror saying this to myself. And I say, Lord, I want it to make a difference. I want it to change it all. I believe without my unbelief. Is it helping us to see that God has always been involved in the affairs of men? And he certainly still is as the day, capital D, draws nearer. The writer of Hebrews writes about that and about us. He says, don't let let us consider how to stimulate. Another translation says how to provoke one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. That's referring to the corporate gathering of the body of Christ in corporate worship. So this idea that I run into in Maine more than anywhere else in the geographical United States, which is the entire United States where I have lived, more people here I run into who are Christians and then throw out the other, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And it's like, you know what? No, you don't. You really don't. No. You don't have to be baptized. To be a Christian, you don't have to take communion to be a Christian. 
But in doing so, you are in abject rebellion to the clear commands of God. So how's that working out for you? God wants us coming together. Why the rest of the verse? To encourage one another. And even more so, as we see the day drawing nearer and nearer and nearer and nearer as things escalate so quickly in our culture and our day. The Lord wants to encourage us with this book of Judges. He's given us these recorded histories to let us know that He has not abandoned us. Nor will He. Now the circumstances are going to mitigate against our believing that. In which case we need to trust either our circumstances or the Lord God Almighty. We are not left to our own solutions to the world's woes in light of it all. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. And while we are expected to take advantage of the fact that we live with privileges, being in a representative republic, we must know, nevertheless, that presidents, kings, and prime ministers are not in charge no matter how much outward appearances tell us otherwise. Isaiah the prophet, in verse 43, writes the following, I, even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? That is called amazing grace. Thanks be to God. Don Cole, come on up. If memory serves me correctly, I think it was uh, the movie about Corey Ten Boom. And uh, I got this visual of a cow. Um, I think there was a, a lady who was a fellow prisoner in the camp who got to go in and out of the, the concentration camp's pharmacy, you know, under the watchful eye of a Nazi collabor- collaborator, another woman. And she got caught taking out too much stuff. So the collaborator broke this woman's hands in a very cruel act. And the other woman said, remember there's a context here, she said, you miserable German cow. So I guess you're right. It's not really great affirmation to be called a cow, even if it is a heifer. So didn't mean to be too lighthearted here, but let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you, even for moments of, I guess, humor. Uh, Lord, we want to uh, be responsive and responsible people. We want to remember the things that you have recorded for us. Uh, You said these things were written for our benefit. And, Lord, I, I see Samson in us. I see other characters in us, in me. Uh, Lord, please, uh, in your grace, as you did in the past, Lord, please use us in spite of ourselves, but with the end game in view, that we would be made like your son, and that we would be always turning back to you. 
uh, that would be uh, peculiar people that would bring praise to your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.